Superman. Captain Marvel. Batman. It is 1985. Robin of Earth 2. Sergeant Rock. The Legion of Superheroes. This is the most eagerly awaited comic book event in 50 years. Tommy Tomorrow. Jonah Hex. Commandy. It will one day be called the greatest comic book event of all time. Swamp Thing. Wonder Woman. The New Teen Titans. The Haunted Tank. Infinity Incorporated. Worlds will live. Green Arrow. Worlds will die. Supergirl. The Flash. And that is only the beginning. The Justice League of America. The All-Star Squadron. The Huntress. Arian. The Metal Man. Firestorm. The Nuclear Man. The Outsiders. Green Lantern. The Blue Beetle. The Crime Syndicate. Warlord. The Guardians of the Universe. Tales of the Justice Society of America proudly presents... And many, many more. Crisis on Infinite Earths. The DC Universe will never be the same. Only at twotruefreaks.com. And now it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Back to the Bins proudly presents I've got a few things to say about Superman. Hello, I'm Snark McGill, and welcome to episode 12 of I've Got a Few Things to Say About Superman. Now, I know what most of you are thinking. A few of you are thinking, Snark, dude, where you been? A lot more of you are probably thinking episode 12 and the rest of you are thinking who the heck is snark mcgill i thought your name was scott gardner i know we have a lot of new converts to the world of two true freaks many of which may not be fully versed just yet on all that has happened in our illustrious history prior to their joining us so let's tackle these thoughts in reverse order my name is scott gardner most of the time but for purposes of this show, and in the hearts of its long-time, long-suffering followers, I'll always be good old Snark McGill. This is episode 12 of a little show I started way back in September of 2011. Uh, it's uh, even gone through a name change or two. Yeah, it's uh, been a bit of a spotty run. As Christopher J. Warden points out, it's been nearly two years since the last episode. Sorry about that. But I'm back! The first question, though, where have I been? That's the tougher one to answer. Most of the time, I've been right here on the Two True Freaks feed, pumping out regular shows devoted to Star Wars, Star Trek, comics, and, lately, Walt Disney World. 
But as I've often said, I'm a huge Superman fan. Superman's kind of my first and foremost love in fictional realms, if you know what I mean. So where has my Superman show been then if I love him so much? And there's no easy answer to that. Now, I could make excuses about not having time or some such, which isn't entirely untrue. But the truth is, if you know me, you know I'm not happy about how the stewardship of the world's greatest superhero is being managed these days. From the comics to the silver screen, Superman, the one I love and cherish, seems to be dying this slow, painful, miserable death. It's been hard to watch, and in fact, I've been trying really hard not to watch it. I've said many times on this show that despite some folks feeling that the name, I've got a few things to say about Superman, has great potential for being misconstrued as, a, as passive-aggressive, I want this show to do what any presentation of Superman should do, in my opinion, thrill and inspire. I don't want it to be a negative experience. If you want a negative Superman experience, go to most any internet discussion of the character these days. Read any of the modern comics or the latest film featuring him. There's no lack of negative Superman experience out there these days, but there's precious little of the positive. And I want so desperately for this show to be a celebration of all that is good and pure and fun about my favorite character. Truth is, that despite all those grand intentions, I got just depressed about the whole thing. Seeing Superman sullied just gets me down. It got me down, and frankly, it took me all this time to kind of get back up about the whole thing. So why am I here then? Well, I'm here because I finally managed to get my act together, and I got inspired about something Superman-related, enough that I wanted to say something about it again. Recently, while covering Crisis on Infinite Earths with my buddy Michael Bailey over on Tales of the Justice Society of America, I got to thinking about how often I've touted Crisis as my absolute favorite comic book story, which is true. That got me to thinking about how much fun I'm having covering it, and how was I ever going to top that feeling, or at least get that feeling again for some other project. You know, what other comic book stories that are among my favorites are something that I've always wanted to talk about? And while there is quite a list, the top of that list has always been readily apparent to me. Back in late 1981, I stumbled across the second issue of a four-issue miniseries that completely blew me away. It's remained, all these years, one of my absolute favorite comic book stories to this very day, and I'm talking about The Phantom Zone. The Phantom Zone, as I said, was a four-issue miniseries. It was written by Howard the Duck creator Steve Gerber with art by Gene Cullen and Tony DiZaniga. Now, keeping in mind that I started this mini with the second issue, I was thrown into a story whose cover proclaimed Earth Under Siege and showed three Kryptonian supervillains standing over the lifeless body of Supergirl and proclaiming that they'd won, she was dead. And then on the opening splash page... What seemed to be pretty much the full roster of exiled Kryptonian villains soar free of their captivity to wreak havoc upon an unsuspecting planet while Superman can only watch helplessly from inside the zone. This was exciting stuff to my 13-year-old brain, and it's still exciting stuff to me today, 34 years later. Phantom Zone the miniseries was a very different tale of the Phantom Zone villains than we'd ever really seen up to that point. Instead of just escaping the zone to pull pranks or match wits or play a bit of mischief on or with members of the Superman family, 
This time, the villains weren't pussyfooting around. They trashed vehicles and property and buildings, and they fought and easily defeated Earth's other non-Kryptonian superheroes, and even threatened to destroy the planet. And oh yes, they killed people. Lots of people. And in some really not pleasant, not kitty comics kind of ways. Phantom Zone upped the ante for what this sort of threat could, and in a more realistic manner, should be like. These villains were scary. Each with the power of Superman, and each one was truly evil, or crazy, or both. It's some great stuff, and I've long wanted to talk to you about it. In fact, I even started once or twice way back when, what feels like about a hundred years ago, in a very early episode, or was it two, of Back to the Bins, Chris Honeywell and I gathered together some of our best friends in the Two True Freaks community of that time to discuss Phantom Zone roundtable style. Now, due to many issues involving Skype and internet connections, we never got further than the first or second issue. Uh, as a matter of fact, if my memory serves, I think we only recorded and released our discussion of the first issue, and the recording we made for the second issue got shelved permanently, I think, uh, because there was going to be this high level of editing that was going to be required to try to salvage what we had. And that's about as far as it ever got. But it's always been in the back of my mind, just sitting there nagging at me, waiting to be talked about. So here I am. I want to talk about it. But I suspect that another reason it's taken me so long to get here is because I always knew I wanted to make a big deal out of it. Because it's a big deal to me. You know, After all, it's not only a great story, and I suspect still a bit of a hidden gem to a lot of comics fans... But it's, as I said, it's, it's a favorite of mine, and I want to do it right. So I got to thinking, what does do it right even mean in this case? Well, for one thing, I suspect that one of the reasons it hasn't happened up till now is that, confession time, I really didn't want to share it with anybody else. And what I mean by that is, I wanted to do this one myself, solo podcasting. Now, I'll be honest with you, I, I never thought I was terribly good at the solo podcasting gig. That's one of the reasons I, I haven't done a heck of a lot of it. Now... Other people tell me different things, you know, here and there, but I myself just never really thought much of myself solo podcasting. But this one's different. This is this is my story, or, or rather, you know, I, I want to give you my version of, of a story that means a lot to me. I want to give you my take. So while I, I've been invited a time or two to discuss this subject with other podcasters, I've always turned it down, and, and that's because I was waiting for my shot by myself. That got me to thinking... All right, how am I going to do it then? Well, the first thing I, I did was decide that in order to really do the story justice, I wanted to introduce you, the listeners, to the major players of the story and give you some background on them so that you'll feel more invested in the story. Plus, I figured that would just be fun to explore the history of the Phantom Zone villains. <laughs> but I didn't realize what a can of worms I was opening. It really started to quickly occur to me as I started to do homework for this that despite the Phantom Zone always being one of my favorite concepts in Superman's world, how little I actually knew of that history. My discovery process of the timeline of events and appearances of characters and developments in the lore of the Phantom Zone so quickly expanded and fascinated me and fired me up that I thought, okay, this is it. This is how I'm going to cover the Phantom Zone. So, here's what the foreseeable future of I've Got a Few Things to Say About Superman is going to look like. You and I are going to go on a little voyage, a voyage of discovery, as we examine the origins of the Phantom Zone. 
eventually, and I don't know when, we'll get to that lauded miniseries, but first we're going to take some time, we're going to have some fun, we're going to look back at the creation and the population of that ghostly realm. And I've even got some secret plans for after we look at the 1981 mini. And uh, I'll tease you a bit. I'll give you some nice, some keyword hints here. Post-crisis. John Byrne. Pocket Universe. Sorry, intrigued yet? I hope so. Now, I wish I could recall my first exposure to the Phantom Zone. I've, I've just always remember being fascinated by it. The whole idea of being turned into essentially a ghost, unable to be heard or seen or felt, unaging, never needing to eat, never being able to touch or to love or to do much of anything but just linger about. Uh, I've often wondered... Uh, you know, just how much thought the council, the Kryptonian council, put into the de the decision to use the Phantom Zone as a more humane form of punishment, and did they truly realize what it was going to mean to be exiled there, what it was going to be like for the people that they were sending there? I, I wondered also, you know, just how exactly does it work? Because sometimes it's depicted as the, an actual place. You know, it's all purple and kind of formless, a sort of limbo. But then other times the, the place would be gone and we'd just see the phantoms watching events on Earth as they happen to characters in the stories. You know, they, they would be standing right next to the characters without the, the phantom zone around them. So were they really there? Were they walking amongst the living in the real world? Or were they watching it through a sort of window, which we would also see from time to time? So how exactly did it work? And you know, while I like the idea of Superman being the sole survivor of his world, at the same time, you know, I was never bothered by the idea of the Phantom Zone containing other survivors. And I suspect I gave it a pass because, yeah, they were survivors too, but they were bad guys. And I liked the irony of the fact that the only other Kryptonians who made it were criminals who only survived because they'd been separated from law-abiding Kryptonian society and sentenced to this otherworldly void. Their exile was the very thing that ensured their survival. And that's twisted. I don't know, it's, I don't know if poetic is the right word, but it's just cool. There was something about that that I really liked. It's actually one of the very few criticisms I have of Burns' reimagining of Superman is that he eliminated the Phantom Zone. Or maybe, you know, maybe just simply never got around to reintroducing it into his new continuity before he bailed. I really don't know. But for the life of me, I honestly can't remember how I discovered the Phantom Zone. It may well have been Superman the movie uh, when I was taken to see that when it came out. Um, I'd like to think it may have come prior to that, but I just can't remember. I, I do know, though, that uh, I was fascinated by it right out of the gate. I remember spending endless hours pouring through my copy of all-new Collector's Edition C62, which was the Superman, the movie... Um, well, it wasn't really a comic. It was sort of a cross between like a treasury-sized comic and a, and a souvenir movie magazine. But in it, amongst many great things, were these articles that drew a comparison between all of the characters in the film versus their original comic book incarnations, including the Phantom Zone villains. And that was just fascinating stuff for a young fan like me. The other great influence that I can remember, and again, I'm not sure if I discovered this before or after Superman the movie... 
But I have, and I still have somewhere, this battered, coverless copy of Superman's Pal, Jimmy Olsen, number 62, that somehow made its way into my hands as a kid. I, I don't even remember where I got the book from. Now, anyone who's ever heard me discuss Superman for any length of time knows my feelings regarding Jimmy Olsen, but for some weird reason, the Phantom Zone tale in that issue remains one of my treasured comic book memories to this very day. I just, I love that story. It's simple and it's quaint, but it has a real charm to it that, that just brings a smile to my face and it gives me the warm fuzzies. Um, you may have even heard me discuss it way back on episode 110 of Back to the Bins, but don't worry if you haven't. Uh, I'll be covering that again at some point as part of this series as well, and I hope to go a little more in-depth about it because, like I say, it just holds a special place in my heart. So enough talk about what I intend to do. Let's just get to it, okay? So the Phantom Zone, depending, I suppose, on when you were born, those three words, the Phantom Zone, likely bring to mind images of three villains dressed in black, menacing the city of Metropolis while its valiant protector tries to defend its helpless and frightened populace, right? Arguably, Superman 2, the adventure continues, uh, is still the face of the Phantom Zone and its villains, and kind of the high watermark for stories of Superman versus these Phantom Zone foes should be told. In the first story I want to discuss today, Superman faces that very threat, three Supermen from Krypton. Now, a couple of things to note before we get started. One, these are the first fellow Kryptonians Superman ever met. Now, that's in publishing order, of course, as it would later be retconned time and time again that he met other Kryptonians earlier and earlier in his life, but this was the first time it was ever done. And two, this is not a Phantom Zone story, which may prompt you to ask, well, then why are you covering it then? You did all this build-up about the Phantom Zone, and then you're talking about a story that doesn't have anything to do with it. Okay, all right, well, just be patient. I have my reasons. So Superman, number 65, this is volume one, of course, was on sale, according to Mike's Amazing World, on or about May 3rd, 1950, and sported a cover date of July, August, 1950. Now, I wasn't around for this, okay? I wouldn't come along for quite a while later, and I, you know, discovered this story retroactively. The cover by Al Plastino, I love that name, Plastino, shows an astounded Superman in Lois Lane looking on in shock at the superfeats of three futuristically garbed supermen. The cover proclaims this the most startling story of the year, the three supermen from Krypton. Uh, that story is actually the third tale in the book. There were multiple stories in this issue, and Al Plastino is credited as the artist, and there is no listing for the writer. So the story starts with this exciting splash page, and it reads like this. It says, When the planet Krypton exploded, all its inhabitants were killed but one, a baby. Placed in a rocket ship by his parents just before Krypton blew up, the baby safely reached Earth, where he was found by a couple named Kent. As all of us know, that baby grew up to be the world's mightiest being, the one and only Superman. But now into Metropolis come not one, not two, but three Supermen, each equal in strength and prowess to the Man of Steel. Small wonder then that the Man of Tomorrow soon faces a desperate battle for his very existence when he encounters three Supermen from Krypton. And it shows this great panel where Superman and a fellow Kryptonian are kind of, their hands are kind of locked. It's weird it's almost like this weird standing arm wrestling contest or something and one is saying 
You cannot defeat me, Superman. I'm as strong as you are. And Superman is thinking in his mind, he's thinking, it's true. And the other two are just as strong. If I can't defeat this one alone, how can I possibly win against the three of them? The other two Kryptonians are just kind of standing, looking on. One of them, by the way, is uh, dressed very similar to how uh, Jor-El was often depicted in uh, old comics from around this time. So our story starts in an afternoon in the uh, bustling city of Metropolis. The people look up, and one of them actually even says, look up in the sky. They look up and they see this, what they think is a meteor headed for them, and they start running for their lives. They're all screaming and panicking. And the thing plows into the center of Metropolis with earth-rocking impact, it says. And the explosive force rocks the city, and the Daily Planet building actually begins to topple over. We see Lois Lane falling about, and Superman is actually in the building as Clark Kent. And he thinks to himself, Woo, better change and get out of here fast. Can't let the building crash. So he switches into Superman, flies out, and we see this great shot of Superman streaking over the city. And the buildings are actually shaking and busting up. They're actually crumbling. And Superman goes into action, and we are told that uh, breaking every speed record he has ever made, the Man of Tomorrow completes the repair job in the fourth of a second. He actually saves the entire city. Presumably no buildings actually are destroyed, although we do see great cracks in the two that, uh, that he's shown in this one panel holding apart from each other. He says, the pressure I'm uh, exerting is forcing the bricks together again. Metropolis is as good as new. Yeah, okay. But I'm thinking, you know, if he's really this fast, he, he repairs all of Metropolis in the fourth of a second, how, then how is anything ever really a threat for him if he can really move that fast? But anyway, so after he fixes the city, he comes landing and he sees that the meteor really wasn't a meteor at all. He calls it some odd kind of plane that landed. And well, it didn't really land, it crashed. And he sees that these three men are just standing there, and he's thinking, how in the world could they have survived this this crash? That's impossible. Only Superman could have survived. And I, I like when Superman is innocently arrogant, if you know what I mean. He's like, well, only I could do that. Well, as we see here, these three guys survive. He says to them, he says, uh, I want to talk to you a moment, but they just race off away from them. And uh, the, the, the basically we have three guys here. One is dressed in yellow, one is dressed in green, one is dressed in red. The guy in red says, Kizo, Mala, follow me. We must elude this red cape to being. And they take off. Now, here's the funny thing. As I said, the guy in red says this. Well, as we're going to see shortly... The names are kind of played a little bit fast and loose in this as far as which character is which. So anyway, Superman takes off to chase them, and he does actually manage to snag the foot of one of the beings, and he pulls him down out of the sky, and they land, and Superman introduces himself. He says, my name is Superman, and I assure you I mean no harm. I just want to find out more about you. <laughs> the blonde-haired one, this is the guy's wearing green. He says, so? He says, well, I am Uban. Uh, the other two are my brothers, Kizo and Mala. But wait, they will be here in a moment. I see them approaching from behind that building, and Superman realizes, hey, this guy's got x-ray vision, just like me. And he even says, you've got the same superpowers I have. And the guy says, superpowers? How amusing. Where we come from, everyone has see-through vision, extra strength, and extra speed. Well, they continue talking a little bit, and quickly they compare notes. And Superman even asks this guy, he says, Uban, have you ever heard of a place called Krypton? And Uban says, it's very clever of you to have guessed that, Superman. Of course we know Krypton. My brothers and I came from there. So 
this was still at a time where the Kryptonians had certain innate super abilities, if you will, certain powers that they had naturally that weren't just a, a, a matter of come to Earth and you get these abilities. I always liked that version of Krypton better, the more evolved Krypton. I think it made a certain amount of sense, if you will, within the comic book framework that some of the more fantastical powers that Superman had, like, say, X-ray vision or telescopic vision or whatever, were actually part of his Kryptonian heritage. I was just always liked that better. And this, of course, was during that time. So I like that. So Uban then relates their origin story, basically, because Superman, you know, after this revelation about Krypton, he says, but that's impossible. Krypton exploded years ago and everyone on the planet was killed. And... Uban goes on to tell about basically how he and his brothers, uh, they wanted to rule Krypton. We'll see this come up again and again as a, as a theme with a lot of these villains that we're going to meet. They came up with this idea of sucking the moisture out of the air and making the air unfit to breathe. I'm not sure how this works, but it's comic book science. So we're going to roll with it. And he basically, he threatened the, the populace of Krypton that uh, he was going to kill everybody unless they <laughs> agreed to make him and his brothers the rulers of Krypton, essentially. But of course, it's Superman's father, Jor-El, that saves the day and defeats the villains. Again, we're going to see this come up quite a bit in, the, uh, in the, the histories of different villains that we meet as well, different Kryptonian villains. And so, defeated... The Kryptonians kind of rush Uban and his and his brothers at this point, and they come storming into the room, and uh, they say, "Accept our thanks, Jor-El. Now we must kill the evil three. And it's Jor-El that actually stops them, and he says, "No, wait. We Kryptonites have never killed before." And I think it's interesting that that at this point they're not referred to as Kryptonians, or at least Jor-El doesn't call them Kryptonians in this part. He calls them Kryptonites. That's just very odd because. Just a few issues before this, Kryptonite actually made its debut in the comic book form. It had been around for a while in Superman lore, having been introduced, I believe, on the radio a good number of years before this. But it had now made its way into the comics, yet for some reason it's still being used to describe the people of Krypton as opposed to, you know, the, the glowing green rock. Anyway, I just thought that was interesting. So... What they do, instead of killing them, because Jor-El says, No, wait, we Kryptonites have never killed before. We must not start now. I never have another idea how to deal with them. So Yuban and his brothers are actually placed in suspended animation and sent into space. Now, again, we'll see this come up uh, quite a bit, too, because this was this becomes... I don't know if this was the first example of it or not. I, I suppose it must be, with this being the first uh, Kryptonians that we're meeting uh, you know, post-Superman's arrival on Earth. But we will see this kind of being played as the, the way things were done before the Phantom Zone came along. So anyway, they're sent off into space, and of course, because they're out in space they survive the destruction of Krypton and they just kind of flow out there aimlessly until one day, as often happened in old Superman stories like this, something bumps into their spaceship, knocks them off course, and eventually they come crashing to Earth where they are now. And uh, Uban wraps up, he says, that is our story. Jor-El was our undoing. Jor-El, and he keeps repeating this whole thing about Jor-El. And Superman, I think rather stupidly, doesn't seem to pick up on this whole thing that they're not fans of Jor-El 
and says, well, by the way, I'm also from Krypton. I'm Jor-El's son, which instantly makes Yuban and his brothers like him that much less. So Yuban, in order to, I think, demonstrate his powers, but also to get away from Superman, super shouts. And when he super shouts, the vibrations are about to shatter this nearby building. So again, Superman has to rush off and do his building saving thing. When that's all said and done, he looks around and he's like, oh, gee, they got away. (laughs) So what does he do? He goes back to work. Again, this would come up a number of times, too, where the Kryptonian villain is out there on the loose. You know, a a, a great potential disastrous force that could maybe even wreck the planet for all we know. And Superman, (laughs) rather than scour the planet for them, puts on his Clark Kent duds and goes back to work. Anyway, that's what he does. He goes back to work. And when he goes to work, suddenly he realizes that his boss and Lois Lane, and soon when he changes into Superman and goes out to investigate, the people of Metropolis are standing stone still like statues. Something has happened to them, and he can't figure out what it is. And eventually he does spot Yuban and his brothers up to no good, but his super hearing picks up this, this low humming sound, and he traces it, and he realizes that the Kryptonian villains have created this it's like a giant gun on top of a on top of a mountain that is shooting down hypnot these beams that are having a hypnotic effect on the human beings below that are, that have essentially frozen all the people so he smashes the machine setting everyone free so when Yuban and his brothers come out of the chemical laboratory where they've stolen all this stuff they're kind of shocked to see that oh gee the people are, are awakened again and Yuban is really upset because when Superman comes you know, landing beside him, he says, so you were the one who interfered. And I'm thinking, why bother to freeze the people anyway? They can't hurt you. They can't do anything to you. So I was a little bit mystified by this. It almost feels like padding out of the, of the story at this point. I really don't understand what the plot was with freezing everybody. But anyway, this is kind of the last straw for Yuban and his brothers. They decide, okay, we're going to go toe-to-toe with Superman. Now, here's another thing that I'm discovering on reading back through these things is that you would think that this would kind of be the natural place that a story of, you know, a a villain on Superman's power level, another person from Krypton with the same powers and abilities, yet evil, that this would be how it would play out, that they would fight. Not always the case, unfortunately, but here they actually do fight. Superman clouts Yuban a good one, but of course, they're at the same power level, so it doesn't really do anything to him. So then in the next panel, we see essentially Yuban and his brothers having a giant rock fight with Superman. They're tossing these giant boulders at each other, and Superman's thinking the boulders aren't having any effect. I just love this. You see these giant rocks, like one's bouncing off Superman's back, one's bouncing off the head of of one of uh, Yuban, either Yuban or one of his followers. It's just great. So... They, they just, they're having this monstrous battle where soon, you know, another panel, they've got trees and they're whacking each other with them. And they're on this remote island where they've chosen to fight, which I like that Superman, you know, decided to, to move the brawl away. Because he even says at one point, he says, uh, we'll go off to some isolated place where we won't endanger the people. I'll give you your choice of a dozen uninhabited islands and we'll settle our differences in a free-for-all super brawl. <laughs> so they go to this island 
and you see this this you know island in the middle of nowhere and these giant waves are being kicked up by the battle and you see all these great sound effects boom bash crash we even get a shot of scientists on the mainline uh, mainland that are uh, detecting you know these great earthquakes that are coming you know from the uh, from the vicinity of the battle and everything it's just great so one of my favorite panels of the whole story is uh, at the bottom of page 12 of the story, it says, But the hours of battle take their toll, and as a blood-red sun sets upon the ravaged isle, the once mighty Superman creeps away, exhausted. And it's this great panel where Superman just looks whooped. And he says, I, I've never felt like this before. I ache all over. But the evil three are in no better condition than I am. And he realizes that... Uh, you know, they're exhausting themselves, wearing themselves out with this battle. So Superman kind of slinks off to kind of recover a little bit. And a little later, as the the three, the Kryptonian three, are resting and they're, they're also trying to regain their strength, suddenly we see this word balloon coming out of Uban's mouth where he says, In our next encounter, we shall surely vanquish Superman. When we do, I and I alone, Uban the Great, shall rule the earth. And this fires up his brothers. His brothers just get really ticked off. And uh, one of them says, So I suspected you would not allow us, your brothers, to share in your triumph. I'll show you, Uban. So then the three of them begin to fight amongst each other. And Superman, we see him looking on in this one panel, kind of peeking around a tree. And he reveals to us, the reader, in his thought bubble, that it was him using ventriloquism. Not super ventriloquism. Just regular ventriloquism was enough in this instance. He used ventriloquism to make the brothers think that Uban said this, but he really didn't say it. It was Superman setting them up. So while they're having this epic tussle between themselves, they wear each of themselves down, and Superman comes along to kind of scoop them up. He says, I'm fit as a fiddle now, but you three have been battling so furiously that you're weaker than ordinary men. Too bad you couldn't trust one another. So he gathers them up, and then he flies all over the earth to collect... Uh, all the ingredients that he needs to duplicate his father Jor-El's formula for putting these guys into suspended animation. So he completes his task, he puts together a, a brand new spaceship, puts these guys back in suspended animation, and then sends them off, and, and that's the end of these, uh, these three Kryptonian villains. So you're probably asking yourself... Why in the world did I cover this story? I mean, yeah, it was fun and it's exciting and all that, but it's not about the Phantom Zone. Well, it is and it isn't. I, I like that it it sets the precedent for Superman fighting fellow Kryptonians, and it kind of sets the precedent where there's the three of them. I, I like that. It, it kind of, I don't know if it foreshadows Superman the movie and Superman 2 with the three villains, but I just, I like that dynamic. Plus... You have the characters that are in this story, one of which is Mala. Now, Mala would actually make his way, sort of, into another medium of Superman. In Superman the Animated Series from back in the, the late 90s, there was this great two-part episode called Blasts from the Past, in which Superman uh, and his friend, uh, Professor Hamilton, uh, they discover that there's a Phantom Zone projector. It's actually a viewer projector 
uh, in super in the ship that brought Superman to Earth as, as a baby. They find this thing, and while they're looking through it, they make a discovery of this person in there that that's basically pleading to be let out. That they have completed their sentence. They've they've fulfilled their obligation. Please, you know, set me free, kind of thing. And this character is Mala. Now, here's the funny thing. Mala, in this instance, is a female. It's not a male character. Whereas in this, you know, this comic book story, Mala was, you know, was a, a male. It was three brothers. In this one, it's a female. And she's kind of an amalgamation of Ursa from the Christopher Reeve Superman films and a comic book character called Feora, who we're going to talk about in a future episode. But it's a great two-parter. It's a lot of fun, and uh, and I think it's one of the better episodes uh, of Superman the uh, the animated series. Uh, again, it was a two-part episode. Now, Mala and Yuban and and Kaizo they actually did return four years later in uh, Action Comics number one ninety four in a story called The Outlaws from Krypton, uh, in which their rocket plows into an asteroid and sets them free. Now. You know, presumably this still happens when the, within the confines of our solar system. Otherwise, I'd expect them to just die from either the impact or, you know, explosive decompression or whatever. But, but anyway, they don't. They gain their superpowers, much like when the, the supervillains are freed in Superman 2. Uh, you know, they pop out into space. They don't die instantly. They, you know, they have their superpowers. Kind of the same thing here. So while Yuban and Kaizo decide not to look a gift horse in the mouth... Uh, it's Mala in this story who kind of takes the lead. Mala is intent on revenge on the Man of Steel and flies back to Earth where he assumes the guise of Clark Kent in order to hide from Superman. Now, if you're thinking this makes no sense, yeah, you're right. That's one of the reasons I'm not covering this one in depth. I mean, there's many reasons, but primarily it's because, I gotta be honest, it's not a very good story and it kind of insults the reader because it change it makes changes to both the established quote-unquote continuity because there really wasn't much of one back at this point from their first appearance in uh, Superman 65 but also gives them knowledge about things that they shouldn't have knowledge about from their first appearance like the fact that you know Clark Kent and Superman are supposedly friends and where Clark Kent works and just basically how human society functions in the first place it, it just there's a lot of just larger leaps in logic and things like that it really comes down to kind of just being an excuse for them to fight again needless to say though the story resolves with superman tricking the trio into yet another rocket ship but this time rather than place them once again in suspended animation and send them off into the void like he did before this time he coats their hull with kryptonite and then uses his super breath to blow them away from our world. And I'm thinking, okay, are they dead? Are they just sort of like weakened out there and placed into another state, kind of like suspended? You know, I don't know. It, it never makes it clear. It doesn't say. All I know is they never came back. They never returned after this point. So, you know, draw your own conclusions. A couple of things about that, though. It's too bad that they didn't come back sometime after the establishment of the Phantom Zone because uh, I think they would have made for some really good Phantom Zone villains. They already made for really good Kryptonian villains, so it would have been interesting to see them kind of incorporated into the the roster of Phantom Zone uh, exiles and villains. But uh, alas, that was, you know, it never came to be. Um, much like in the first story, it's a little impossible to tell 
Mala from Kaizo in this uh, in both of these stories. Uh, Yuban is the easy one to identify. He's the blonde. But the other two look virtually identical. And the, the names are almost used interchangeably, so it, it's just a little bit strange. couple of notes, though, before I move any further on this. Going back to Superman uh, number 65, another thing that I noted on this is that Jor-El is referred to by Yuban as being the leader of the Kryptonian Council. That's a new one on me. I knew he was a member, or thought he was a member, but the leader? I'd never really thought of him as the leader of the council, so I'm wondering, or what the whole story is with that whole thing. The Superman 65 story has actually been reprinted a couple of times. It was reprinted in Superman in the 50s. This was a trade paperback from 2002. I actually picked that up not long ago, and it's a really good read. Uh, And also... In Superman, The Greatest Stories Ever Told, Volume 1 trade paperback from 2004. The other story, which again, like I said, I didn't think it was as good. Um, that one's been reprinted a couple of times as well. That was reprinted in Superman Annual Number 4 from 1962 and in Superman Number 217 from 1969. So you're probably wondering, where's the Phantom Zone part of this Phantom Zone examination, Right. Um, well, that's what we're going to take a look at next. The first appearance of the Phantom Zone. And strangely enough, it wasn't in a Superman book. The Phantom Zone first appeared in Adventure Comics number 283, cover dated April 1961, in a story entitled The Phantom Superboy. Written by Robert Bernstein with art by George Papp. This story is a lot of fun. I think you're really going to like it. It's not only the first Phantom Zone story, it actually establishes a number of firsts related to the Phantom Zone as well. So we have this great cover on it where you have uh, Jonathan and Martha Kent, and they're standing there looking very bewildered. I love how there are old-timey cars in the background of the, of the picture. And off to the right-hand side of the cover, you have something that looks like Jabba's Palace from Return of the Jedi. I don't know what that's all about. And they're out in kind of the middle of nowhere, and there's this strange collection of weird things in front of them. And Jonathan Kent is saying, Don't worry about Superboy, Martha. Our son must be safe wherever he is. Not even these forbidden weapons from Krypton could have uh, had any effect on him. Superboy is actually standing right in front of Jonathan Kent. He's actually reaching out and putting his arm right through the middle of Jonathan's chest. And he's saying, You're wrong, Dad. One of them projected me into the Phantom Zone. They don't see me. They don't feel me. How can I tell them I no longer exist on Earth? I just, I love this cover. It's really neat. One of the things that's really interesting about it, too, is that even though he's a phantom, Superboy still has color. This is something we won't see in any Phantom Zone story I'm privy to inside the actual comic where the the Phantom Zone villains or the Phantom Zone exiles have any color to them. They're always drawn as black and white like ghosts. But in this one, he actually has like a very light color, like see-through faded type colors. I really like this look. I think that actually would have been a really dynamic look to go for for the Phantom Zone uh, people. But uh, alas, that's not the direction that they go. All right, so let's go ahead and we're going to jump into this. Again, this story is called The Phantom Superboy. There is an opening splash page, as all the comics had back then, which is great because I had so many of these comics 
as coverless comics when I was a kid. So it was nice that they essentially had a second cover on the inside. The first page of the story was often this, this splash page that may or may not have been another version of the cover. This one actually is not. This one's a, a completely different second cover, if you will. And it says on it, One day through a tragic accident, a fearful fate overtakes the boy of steel. He becomes a ghost of himself, a pathetic wraith-like figure who can't be seen, heard, or felt in our world. This terrible situation poses an avalanche of problems for the young protector of mankind. How will he ever become effective on Earth again? Or is he doomed forever to be the Phantom Superboy? And we have this great setup. The, The splash page here is of Clark Kent saying to these two workmen, uh, the the tire has blown out on their, they have this ginormous truck. And uh, Clark Kent is holding one side of the truck and he says, forget the jack, boys, I'll lift the truck for you. And Phantom Superboy is thinking to himself, no, no, Clark Kent robot, don't do it. You mustn't reveal your super strength. And then he goes on to think, that fool robot isn't thinking clearly because of his imperfect construction. He's giving away my secret identity to Lana. Lana Lang is standing nearby. And I can't stop him. I've become a phantom who no longer exists on Earth. I love it. This is a great panel. So, one day in Smallville as Clark Kent, who is secretly Superboy, they always want to remind you of this fact, helps his father in the general story. Uh, Jonathan Kent, he's kind of ticked off because the Dairyman... I love old-timey comics. The Dairyman has made a mistake and delivered him twice as much milk as he ordered. And we see Jonathan Kent carrying in these giant uh, milk canisters that they used to use years ago. Uh, But he's mad because uh, he got twice as much milk as he ordered, but the the milk guy didn't bring any butter. So Clark says, eh, I'll take care of that for you. So they go down in the basement with a couple of, uh, with three milk canisters and... Clark Kent uses his super speed to whip up butter out of the milk. I have no idea if this is how this really works. I mean, I've heard of a butter churn, of course, but I mean, can you really, is that it? Is that all you got to do is agitate it and you get, I don't don't know. I don't care. (laughs) So anyway, Pa Kent, he's satisfied. He's got the butter that he needed. So Clark says, okay, dad, now I'll go back uh, to unpacking that shipment of electric typewriters. And I'm thinking they live in Hicksville. What do they need all these electric types typewriters for? But anyway, He goes back upstairs, and while Jonathan does all the work, Clark Kent is sitting on crates typing away when Crazy Pants Lana Lang comes in. She's placing an order for uh, baking pans, and she sees Clark typing away and says, Hey, what are you up to? This is one of the wackier points of a very wacky story to begin with, but one of the wackier points. He says, "Uh, I've been trying out the uh, first electric typewriter on the market. It just arrived today. And she comes over to see what he's typing, and she sees that he has typed, The quick brown fox jumps over the lazy white dog. What sort of sentence is that? She asks, and he says, It's a practice typing sentence which uses all the letters in the alphabet. I'll give you a demonstration, Lana. And they go on and on about this stupid electric typewriter. So, at one point, while he's explaining how it works, I'm thinking, why do you have to explain a typewriter to somebody? But anyway, he's saying that... uh, Everything's done by electricity, except the brain work. After all, one must do something for oneself. And she says, hmm, I wonder, you said it was electrical. Well, in school, we learned that thoughts are brain waves, and brain waves are electrical impulses. Therefore, by directing one's thoughts at the machine, I'll bet one could transform one's thoughts into typewritten form. That way, the typewriter would work without even being touched. Of course, the mental typist would have to have a super brain, giving off super brain waves 
that are super strong. Like someone I know, and I'm thinking, what are you talking about? <laughs> but rather than Clark asking that question, he's thinking to himself, Great Scott, has she spotted my secret? And I'm thinking, no, she's nuts. Anyway, she, she concludes with saying that uh, only Superboy could transmit super thoughts <laughs> that would relay... Uh, enough electrical energy to the typewriter so you're not superboy so why talk about it and he's all really golly for a second i thought she discovered i was Superboy. i'm like you just discovered that she's out of her mind this actually plays a part of the story which is why i'm spending so much time talking about this but it's still yeah, come on it's that's way way out there man anyway so <laughs> Lana's done with her shopping, and Pa Kent says, Hey, by the way, Clark, could you, uh, could you deliver these packages that I set near the door? And he says, Sure, I'll, I'll go ahead and I'll deliver them, and I'll take Lana home while I'm doing it. So we get this great shot of Lana and Clark are actually driving. Now, I don't remember seeing Clark, young Clark Kent driving all that often. I just thought this was kind of neat. It's, for me, it was kind of a novelty, because I just don't remember many instances of this. So he's driving her home in the, in the Kent station wagon, and Clark, you know, I guess just to make conversation, says, I haven't seen your dad lately, uh, Lana. How is the professor? Now, Lana's father was, basically, he was kind of an Indiana Jones type. He was always off on archaeological digs and d doing different things. A lot of times this would play into different Superboy stories, as it does in this instance. So we actually cut to the New Mexican desert, where... Professor Lang is on one of his archaeological digs, and they're digging around, and all of a sudden, one of his assistants says, Professor Lang, look! Something is hurtling down from the sky. I love this part of the story. Professor Lang himself, he says, yes, I see it. It's a large metal box. It'll burst into pieces when it hits the ground. Now, they're not far from this thing when it finally hits. They're maybe a couple hundred yards at most. As we saw in Superman number 65... When the rocket plowed into the ground and like rocked the earth enough to shatter buildings. You know, granted this thing is only the size of like a, a personal safe. Still, falling out of orbit like this, I'm pretty sure. Now, I'm no scientist, but I'm pretty sure at the very least it would probably kill anybody that was only a couple hundred yards away from it. Instead, we just see it hit the ground and it just goes, whoop, and that's it. No, I don't think it works that way. I think it creates a pretty big blast and a crater and knocks stuff around. Uh, anyway, so it hits, and they're shocked that uh, it hits the ground and it remains intact, and they deduce that it must be made of some indestructible metal. And so they go over to it, and one of uh, Professor Lang's assistants says, Ow! It glows and gives us a strange tingling sensation when you touch I'm thinking, why are you touching it? It just fell out of space. And it's glowing. Why are you even getting near it? It could be radioactive. It could be... who? God only knows. Have they not seen the Andromeda strain? Anyway, so they deduce that, uh, that something's going on with this thing. And they're looking at it. And they see that there's this strange language on there. And one of the <laughs> assistants to... <laughs> to Professor Lang... I'm just noticing that one of Professor Lang's assistants at the bottom of the page looks a lot like Jed Clampett. Another one of his assistants, this very dorky professor-looking guy, says, uh, I'm an ang uh, a language expert professor, uh, but for all my research in languages, I can't translate the hieroglyphic inscription on this box. My guess is it's from another world. You think? So, <laughs> Lang says, well, 
we'll we'll get Superboy to uh, check it out. He can check it out with his X-ray vision, and he can tell us uh, what's contained inside of it. So two days later in Smallville, now how they got from the New Mexican desert to Smallville in two days, I don't know. But anyway, they get there, and uh, Superboy actually says, uh, "Sorry, Professor." He says, "I can't look inside the box because the box is lead-lined, and his X-ray vision uh, doesn't penetrate it." However, the language, the inscription on it, is of course in Kryptonese. Of course, it is because everything that falls from space is from Krypton. So. <laughs> He says, according to the inscription, this box was fired into space 20 years ago. That's long before Krypton blew up. Probably remained in orbit until some disturbance in outer space, possibly cosmic debris, <laughs> forced it out of orbit and it floated under Earth. See, I told you this was going to come up again. So anyway, he also goes on to say that the inscription warns any finder against opening the box. So Superboy says that he's going to find a secluded spot rather than like put it somewhere safe or throw it back into space or into the sun or anything sensible, he says he's going to find a secluded spot where he can open it safely. Uh, yeah, wait, Superboy, you just said the inscription warns any finder against opening the box. Anyway, Superboy goes to his secluded spot, which turns out to be a mountainous region outside of town. That doesn't sound very secluded to me. I'm thinking like... Like, you know, the Gobi Desert sounds secluded, you know? Death Valley sounds secluded, but a mountain out of town? Yeah, that's a little too close for comfort. Anyway, Superboy goes and uh, he uses a super karate chop to basically peel off the top, the, the lid of this box, looks inside, and he finds all kinds of cool things. There's a scroll, there's a helmet, there's uh, these weapon-like objects, and he pulls out the scroll starts to read and uh, he realizes hey it's in Kryptonese and he reads it and it says warning the contents of this box are weapons developed by advanced Kryptonese science we of Krypton consider them too dangerous to keep we have therefore sealed them in a container placed the container in a satellite rocket and launched it into outer space where the weapons can never menace our planet and it's signed by of course I'll give you a moment to guess you probably guessed right Jor-El Superboy's father. So, yeah. Everything from Krypton makes its way to Earth eventually, and most of it's from, from Jor-El. So, Superboy, you know, he, he reads this, he says, it's signed by Jor-El. My own father fired this box into space. I must examine these weapons. What, what, are you, what are you thinking? There's a warning on the box. Don't open the box. He opens the box. There's a scroll in there from his dad saying, all this stuff is really dangerous. Don't mess with it. And he's just gotta check it out. So the first thing he pulls out is the gun, which is hilarious because this gun kind of looks like a cross between a space rifle and a hot dog. It's really weird looking. And he pulls it out and he says, uh, according to Jarrell's description in this scroll, this is a ray gun which can disintegrate anything living or inorganic into nothingness by electroatomic evaporation. Okay, I'll try it on that mountain. I'm thinking, what? Oh, okay, he says it's been worked on for months by railroad builders who want to blast it away. I'll do them a favor by removing it. Now that sounds sweet and nice and very helpful, Superboy. But what I want to know is, did he check first? Did he look to make sure nobody was actually on the mountain? Making sure that the railroad builders weren't actually working on the railroad. Maybe, you know, there's some hikers or a, or a Cub Scout troop or, you know, just did you look first? I kind of think maybe not. 
and I'll, I'll give you my reason why in just a moment. Anyway, he goes ahead and he zaps the mountain. And there is a really cool panel, the next panel, where uh, Superboy is, uh, he's just kind of overtaken. He says, golly, he says, just look at it now. Enveloped in rainbow colors. And it is a pretty cool effect. Basically, this giant, um, instead of a rainbow, it's essentially, it's concentric circles like a target. But it has, each different concentric circle is a different rainbow color. So it's a pretty cool effect. And then in the next panel, the mountain's pretty much gone. And Superboy says, now it's disappearing, like ice dissolved by a blowtorch. And then he realizes, then he realizes, this terrible weapon must be put away forever so no human being can ever use it for evil purposes. You think? I, I'm pretty sure that's what it said on the box and the scroll. Anyway, so not having learned his lesson, Superboy starts playing with the next thing in the box. This thing is supposed to be an enlarger that can expand any object it's aimed at to many times its size. Hmm... I'll try it out on that plant. And he goes ahead and he fires the thing. By the way, the thing looks like an old-timey camera on a tripod, I have to point out. And right away, he performs the experiment and realizes, whoops, I goofed. He says, I didn't notice that lizard. There was actually a lizard on the plant that he was aiming at. Now the lizard has grown to dinosaur size. This is why I'm really worried about the mountain that he just evaporated, because if he didn't check the plant and notice the lizard, did he check the mountain? <sighs> so, of course, now that the lizard has been turned into a dinosaur, the dinosaur goes on a rampage. Superboy tricks it into falling off a cliff and drowning. Poor lizard, never did no harm to nobody. <laughs> I mean, if you turn me into a giant freak, I think I'd be a little bit ticked off, too, with reason. So then, he decides to check out the next thing in the box, which is a weird-looking space helmet. He puts the helmet on. It's actually called a Thought Helmet. And the Thought Helmet is essentially... <laughs> there's a recording in the Thought Helmet. So he puts it on, and it says, uh, Harken, wearer of this helmet, until outlawed by the rulers of Krypton. This is very important. Until outlawed by the rulers of Krypton, yonder weapon was used as a means of punishing criminals. He's talking, of course, about the Phantom Zone projector. It's essentially, it looks like um, like a giant flashlight uh, with little runners on the bottom to keep it standing up straight. And on the back side of it, you have a big black button and a big white button. And it says, by pressing the black button, convicts were projected into a Phantom Zone for the duration of their sentence, after which time they could be recalled only by pressing the white button. Whoever wears this helmet will now not only hear my taped voice, but will see thought images. First, you will see the famous case of Dr. Zadu versus the government of Krypton. And we actually change scenes. We cut to Krypton and we see <laughs> your classic, <laughs> very classic Earth courtroom with essentially you have the jury on the right hand side. You've got the prosecutor on the left hand side. You've got... Uh, Dr. Zadu in the witness box surrounded by guards and you've got uh, Krypton's Pope as the judge here. Love the hat. So the prosecutor is saying Dr. Zadu, you're on trial for breaking the law which forbids the use of suspended animation in any scientific research. Now this would seem to kind of be in conflict with the whole thing of them putting the three Kryptonian villains in suspended animation and launching them out and as again as we will see that that becomes the, it may even be established by this point, that was kind of the default method before the Phantom Zone came along 
of dealing with Krypton's criminals was placing them in suspended animation and launching them into space. So I'm not sure how this whole thing with Dr. Zadu works, but anyway, that's what he's accused of. And Zadu defends himself. He says, but I had to try suspended animation. My experiment couldn't succeed without it. The prosecutor comes back and says, jury, see the results of Dr. Zadu's experiments. And we see this depiction of a, a man and woman laying in uh, chambers very much like the ones in uh, the very first Planet of the Apes movie where the astronauts were in suspended animation. It says, a man and woman in the grip of suspended animation. Nothing can undo their state of perpetual sleep. Dr. Zadu knew he could not revive them before he began his forbidden tests. And Zadu just stammers and he says, but, but they volunteered. That is no excuse. Suspended animation is against the law on Krypton. What is the jury's verdict? And of course, their verdict is guilty. So, Dr. Zadu is hereby sentenced to spend 30 years in the Phantom Zone. The executioner took over promptly. In the prison courtyard, he aimed the punishment weapon at Dr. Zadu and pressed the black button. And while Zadu is saying, no, no, don't, he, uh, he vanishes. And in the very next panel, we see... The executioner just picks up the Phantom Zone projector. Prosecutor is uh, going, well, now he's gone completely to dwell for 30 years in the Phantom Zone. And the interesting thing, I, I love that. I always loved this about the Phantom Zone, especially when, when people were projected into the Phantom Zone. You see this right in this very first story. They're chained to something. In this case, he's chained to a wall. The wall doesn't disappear. The chains don't disappear. But the person disappears into the phantom zone it's like how does the phantom zone viewer projector know exactly what to project why does it you know if, if it doesn't project the chains then why does it project his clothes why doesn't it just project zadu and then like his boots are left behind or something it's just it's kind of odd in the things that it's selective about projecting into the zone the chains always stay behind which i get a kick out of then there is the case of the traitor this is a name you'll be familiar with general zod see i think it's very interesting zod becomes the face of the phantom zone you know when you think of the phantoms if somebody were to say to you name a phantom zone villain chances are you're going to say general zod right i've got to assume that that really comes out of the superman films the, the chris reeve films especially superman 2 because i think as we're going to see in this history that we're going to look at yes zod was here in the earliest incarnation of the phantom zone but he's not the original guy we just met dr zadu he's the original phantom zone villain zod comes along in this next part and yeah he's important he's you know he's right there in the beginning but as we're going to see over the history he's not the big guy and that i think that's very interesting anyway general zod who used a duplicator ray to create a private army to overthrow the government and we see Zod, and he's uh, standing in the witness box. His, his arms are crossed, and he looks very smug, very unrepentant for what he has done. And we have this army of basically what are bizarro Zods who go, me want to overthrow Krypton, make General Zod dictator. Now, this is a good place for me to uh, confess, I always hated pre-crisis bizarros. Always, always, always. I got no love for the pre-crisis bizarros. Now, I know people do, but I just, I, I don't. I just think the when I think of the more ridiculous elements of Silver Age pre-crisis DC, especially Superman's, I, th this is one thing I'll, I'll point straight to is the bizarro stuff. I just, it's just so silly to me. I just don't like it. But anyway... This is what he's accused of. 
and the jury condemned General Zod to spend 40 years in the Phantom Zone. And as they sentence him and we see him dissolving away, Zod is again very non-repentant and he's going down with Krypton. Someday I'll enslave all its people. Oh, and he goes away. Well, that's the last of that tyrant for 40 years anyway. By the way, I'm just noticing um, during this depiction of Krypton that uh, nobody seems to wear pants. Everybody's content to just walk around in their very futuristic uh, tops and tidy whities It's like nobody's got pants. It's kind of, is that what the future looks like? I don't know if I'm comfortable with that. Anyway, so Superboy is removing his thought helmet and thinking to himself, hmm, those criminals and traitors and many other evildoers must still be in the Phantom Zone because Krypton blew up before they were brought back. This is a very interesting plot point. As he's thinking that and taking off the helmet, the Phantom Zone projector suddenly goes click because the little body of the lizard that uh, Superboy blew up to dinosaur size and then killed, or caused to be killed, has been climbing all over the rocks and all over the Phantom Zone projector and now has actually climbed onto the black button. Suddenly, the projector comes to life and Superboy is projected into the Phantom Zone, which I think is just awesome. Great panel here. And as he dissolves, same thing with the panel above it where Zod was sent into the zone, we have that same image I was talking about from the cover where there is like faded color within inside the phantom form it's, it's just a shame that didn't carry over into the the finished phantom form because when he's actually a phantom he's just uh he's black and white with no color at all but he's actually sent into the phantom zone and he says the punishment machine uh it suddenly went on its spotlight is focused uh, on me i'm starting to vanish and he goes into the zone says wait I see what must have happened. The mate of that lizard I enlarged accidentally pushed the black button, projecting me into the phantom zone. He goes over to the viewer, and he tries desperately to press the white button. He says, it's no use. My hands go right through the machine, like the condemned criminals in the phantom zone. I no longer exist on Earth. I, I have no physical effect on anything. And we spent the next couple of pages with Superboy being frustrated as he flies around smallville trying to be seen be heard be witnessed and he even uh, sees a crime in progress and can do nothing about it whatsoever crypto even comes on the scene and superboy tries to uh, get his attention but crypto flies right through him he truly is a phantom that can't communicate with anybody and I imagine as as any young kid would do, he actually starts crying at one point in this, which uh, is kind of touching when he realizes just what this might mean for him, that he's stuck here. Nobody even knows where he is. So we cut to the Kent house and Jonathan and Martha, they're starting to get concerned that uh, that they can't find him. And Martha even says, where can our son be, Jonathan? Uh, he hasn't been heard from since he left Professor Lang's house with that metal box. By the way, that reminds me, speaking of the metal box, we never do get an explanation in this story for why the box glows. The artist went to great trouble in every single panel that has the box in it to depict the box as glowing. And it is green. It's not like kryptonite green. It's more like army green. But it comes from krypton. It's green. And it's glowing. How is it not kryptonite? Uh, that was kind of a mystery to me. I don't understand the whole thing with making a point about it being glowing. And then not kind of following through on what that was all about. Anyway, 
back to the story. And Jonathan Kent says, well, I don't know where he is, but uh, in the meantime, until he comes back, we need to cover for him. So he activates a Clark Kent robot. Now, why Superboy had both Clark Kent robots and Superboy robots is beyond me. Why not just like one set of robots that could do both things? That, that was always kind of strange to me. Anyway, he sends the uh, Clark Kent robot up to, to cover for his son. But he, he even admits that uh, there is a problem that uh, their mechanism isn't perfect. It's not really explained why it's not perfect in this. It's just not. They're just, they're faulty robots. So they go upstairs and that night they can hear Superboy being called over the radio for emergencies, but they don't understand. Where is he? They, they can't understand what could have possibly happened to him. Turns out Superboy is right there with them unseen. And he says, I know, he says, uh, that's what worries me. These terrible weapons are lying around exposed. He's talking about the, the Kryptonian super weapons that are still laying out there in this remote place. He says some criminal could find them if I could only get a message to dad. So he continues to linger about Smallville as a phantom and he follows the Clark Kent robot. And this goes straight into the scene from the splash page where these delivery drivers are trying to repair um, their flat tire and they have jacked up, you know, to replace the tire, but the jack slipped off the truck. So now they're kind of screwed. They're like, oh man, now what can we do? And the Clark Kent robot says, look, Lana, I'll lift up the truck for the driver. And she's like, what? And Superboy gets really concerned. He's like, that stupid robot's going to give away my secret identity. So he flies over to the robot. And as the robot starts to try to lift the truck, Superboy says... I'll concentrate my thoughts on the mechanism which controls his super strength. My brainwave should carry a supercharge of electricity that might short circuit the tiny motor which gives him superpowers. Again, to which I say, what? But it actually works, and the Superboy robot can't lift the truck, and Lana just you know makes fun of him. Which why Superboy? Why Clark can't put up with her crap? I really don't know, because all she ever does is run him down. So she pokes all kinds of fun at him, like, oh, what did you think you were, Superboy? And Superboy, the real Superboy, he's actually really excited about this turn of events. He says, it worked. The electrical powers of my thoughts ruined the robot's superpowers. Well, at least my super thoughts can operate from the fan. Wait a minute. Now I know how to get a message to Dad. And you may have already guessed what he's going to do here. He goes back to the Kent General Store. It's a good thing Jonathan's there, or maybe he has to wait for Jonathan. That would suck. He's figured the whole thing out. He goes back there, and Jonathan doesn't show up to work for like 12 more hours or something. But anyway, he goes there. Jonathan Kent's there, and the typewriter is there, and it's still plugged in. So Superboy concentrates as hard as he can, and he directs his electrical energy of his super brain. Yeah, I know. At the typewriter, and the typewriter magically starts typing by itself. And so he uses his brain and he transmits the message that says, Dad, this is Superboy contacting you from the Phantom Zone. I'm trapped here in a world where I can't be seen or heard by anyone on Earth. I'm using this electric typewriter to attract your attention. And uh, Jonathan Kent, he gets the message. And so he drives out to the mountain slope outside of Smallville and he presses the white button and Superboy returns to the real world. And uh, he says, Superboy, you're back. He says, yes, Dad, I'm in your world again. Now I'm going to put all the weapons back in the box and seal it with super pressure in the heat of my x-ray vision. Then I'll dump it in the ocean. 
so it can never be recovered by anyone but me. I'm thinking, yeah, Aquaman's going to love that. So, at least at the end of the story, he learns his lesson. Or at least, presumably, he learns his lesson. He puts the crap back in the box, seals it up, and he puts it somewhere where nobody, hopefully, can ever get at it again. So, you know, he he has to go a long way around. He could have been sentenced for eternity to the Phantom Zone. But he learns his lesson, puts his stuff back, and in the very last panel of the story, he says, Now I'll round up those jewel thieves, this is the crime he saw earlier, and dig up their loot. And speaking of crooks, maybe someday, when I grow up, I'll revisit the Phantom Zone and meet all the criminals from Krypton who are still there. Okay, so this is the interesting part of this to me, is that he does mention the criminals. He mentions that, well, they must still be there. I can't help but wonder, what was the intention of the writer with this story regarding the criminals? Because it seems to vacillate a bit on whether or not there are any because for one superboy doesn't encounter anyone while he's in the zone which kind of makes it seem like okay there's not anybody in the zone the zone is empty there was also the thing with the thought helmet that says until outlawed by the rulers of krypton yonder weapon was used uh, as a means of punishing criminals so this doesn't last in continuity. Spoiler, but it doesn't last. This whole thing about the Phantom Zone being outlawed. This becomes the de facto way that they punished criminals on Krypton. They didn't have a death penalty. They did away with sending people off into space in suspended animation. The Phantom Zone becomes the way that they deal with their criminal element. So this whole outlaw thing gets dropped. But what I want to know is, okay, so they sentence the people to the zone, and then they, they decide at some point that these super weapons are too dangerous to remain on Krypton, and they send them off into space. So, did they free the villains first? Because if they didn't, that seems incredibly cruel. Because as we see, just based on this story, and again, this is going to change, but based just on this story, Dr. Zaydu is sentenced to 30 years, and Zod is sentenced to 40 years. So it seems just beyond cruel to decide, you know what, this is, this is for whatever reason, they're, they're calling this a weapon, but for whatever reason, that it would seem cruel to suddenly decide, you know what, we, we can't use this anymore, so we're going to seal it up with all this stuff, the ray gun and all this other stuff, and we're going to launch it off into space, yet leave the criminals in there. That's just wrong on so many levels. So presumably they set the villains free, which, again, presumably is why Superboy didn't encounter any of them in this story. Now, unfortunately with some of this, I'm going to have to spoil a little bit ahead on, on things that we're going to talk about. The next couple of Phantom Zone stories that we're going to look at, there are no criminals in the Phantom Zone. That doesn't come for a while. So, again, it lends into this idea that there aren't any. So I'm wondering, why then does the writer, on two different instances, on page 10, where he says, uh, those criminals and traitors and many other evildoers must still be in the Phantom Zone, and then again at the very end of the story, where he says, well, I'd like to go back one day and see the you know, meet the people that are in there. Why does the writer make a point of that when it seems to go counter to the whole outlaw. I'm just, I'm confused by that. And so far in my read through of this material, I've not really found a satisfactory explanation for that. So a couple other notes on this. Um, for one thing, 
when I really sat down and consciously thought about it, it's actually shocking to me to learn that the Phantom Zone comes so late, relatively speaking, in Superman's history. This is 1961. Superman had been around for almost 23 years by this point. This uh, story is, uh, is dated April of, uh, of 61. So almost 23 years by this point. That's almost a fourth of his history from 1938 till now. That's a pretty big chunk for something that has become a huge part of the character's lore to not have existed. The cool thing about that, though, is that now that it is around, or you know, now that it's hit with this issue, as we're going to see, it's, it's pretty much an overnight sensation. It became a thing right out of the gate. It wasn't something where somebody thought it up, it was in this story, and then you know, years later somebody rediscovered it and it became a thing. No, right out of the gate, it's, it's kind of a thing. I really like, and I know I pointed this out as we went through the story, but again, I just want to reiterate, I like the fact that Zod, while he is today's face of the Phantom Zone, is not the first villain that we meet. We actually meet Dr. Zadu first, who, outside of diehard Superman fans, I challenge you to find a man on the street who knows who the heck Dr. Zadu is. I just think that's kind of neat. Um, we do meet General Zod. I always got a kick out of General Zod's look. He looks so very different than the other, not only the other villains, but the other Kryptonians that we meet. And in this one, he does have his very uh, militaristic style uh, uniform, which uh, something I was reading said that he was, his kind of fascist uniform was playing on kind of the, the, the Cold War, the 50s fears of fascism and all that. I don't know if any of that's true, but it's, it's an interesting idea. Here, he's, he's a little rotund, he's a little beefy. His uniform is more... Um, not quite army green, but it's pretty close to it. It's not gray as it would eventually become. And uh, again, he's not wearing pants, which is just odd, especially with those boots. <laughs> That's pretty much my notes on this. I don't like to have pre-written synopses for the format on this show. I like to do it stream of consciousness style. So that's pretty much all I had on this. I did want to point out, though, where you can find this story beyond the original place which is Adventure, again, Adventure Comics number 283. It has been reprinted in Superboy number 165 from 1970 in a recent uh, trade paperback called Superman Tales of the Phantom Zone and also in a very recent trade paperback called Superman vs. Zod. That's about it for this episode. I'm very curious what you thought of it. I hope you liked it. I hope you're interested and intrigued by the concept. Please write in, give me some feedback on this. And I want to tease you a little bit about next time. So next episode, and at this point, I'm not exactly sure when that's going to be. I promise it won't be two years from now. But in our next episode, the Phantom Zone concept returns just two months later in Superboy number 89. And it plays a critical role in the fate of Superboy's big brother. And then we'll also time travel to September 1961 to see how Superboy winds up back in the Phantom Zone again thanks to the hijinks of the Knave from Krypton. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of www.forumforgeeks.com. Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, 
which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.libsyn.com and is a registered trademark of Demanzocor of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you may find at comicbooknoise.com league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcasts.com. Take a moment to stop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. From a doomed planet in a distant galaxy to a fantastic underground hideaway, from the fortress of solitude to the bustling city room of the Daily Planet, look up on the screen. It's Superman. Superman, the movie.